Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 706. I'm Jim McDowell, your host. With me, as always, is my co-host from the UK, Richard Jowett. Richard, how are things in the UK this evening? Uh, very good, thank you, Jim. Yes, nice to see you. Uh, we're back on schedule. Yes. After a bit of a fuzzy couple of weeks, for which we apologise, because uh, as we said last time, things got a bit hectic with work and life and uh, a dose of man flu for myself as well, which slowed things down a little bit. But uh, back on schedule, so uh, we'll hopefully get this one out within a few days of the races. So, yeah, good good to be back. Definitely good to be back, uh, back yeah. on schedule. Definitely hectic here for us. Both Rich and I have day jobs, which have affected the show. Uh, no excuse. <laughs> but, <laughs> hey, there's only so many hours in a day. <laughs> so anyway uh there's not much going on here uh in the way of news and whatnot we're going to touch on that but first before we go to news i want to remind everybody in the u.s that rally for vets is holding a track day so you can take your car to the track open it up uh have a good time you can then also support uh vets because what they do is they will get, uh, take uh, dogs that are trained in PTSD and they help the, get them to vets who need them. It's a great cause. And they're doing it at the, sh at the Summit Raceway Shenandoah Circuit on October the 22nd. And with more information is Mr. Robert Hess. Take it away, Robert. Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Hess, and I lead a veteran charity that is hosting a new track series supporting veterans coping with PTSD. The format is a track cross, like a time trial, but with just one car running on the track at a time. Our next event is the Top Dog Championships, scheduled for Summit Point's Shenandoah Circuit on October 22nd. Registration is open on motorsportreg.com. Just search for Top Dog Track Cross. I hope you join us and finish as a Devon Top Dog Champion while you help our veteran community. Thanks, Robert. With that, guys, let's get to the news. Rich, why don't you lead us in with MotoGP news? Okay, thanks, Jim. Yeah, we've got a few bits to catch up on here. So I, we did speculate on this in the last show, but I think it's now official uh, as of the Thailand weekend that Albert Arenas will be going to the KTM IO Moto2 squad. So... I think we both feel that that's a pretty good move for him. I think he's, I, I don't want to say he's fortunate to get that ride because he's showing a lot of promise. But as we said last time, hopefully this is the last bit with, with Aki Ayo overseeing his kind of race preparation and the whole kind of mindset aspect of, of what Aki is so good at. I think, you know, Albert could be a real contender next year if that move gels. I don't know what you think, Jim. Uh, I wasn't shocked by it. Um, but I, and again, I'm like you, it, I'm not going to call it fortunate because Uranus has shown mm. flashes of immense potential to be a Moto2 world champion. I, I think he actually almost rides the Moto2 bike better than he rides the Moto3 bike. Uh, just, he, he seems to have gelled with it and this might be what he needs to be a world champion is to sit with IO. Um, it's interesting that IO has gone the way of two younger riders for that I'll call it the factory KTM team Yeah. with Acosta confirming that he was going to be there again next year. Okay. That's no surprise. That's just waiting for an announcement. And yeah. now you bring Arenas in there. So you have two former Moto three world champions, you know, Acosta, the previous champion and the champion before was Arenas. Mm -hmm. So that should be interesting to see how that works. 
and where they go with it. So good on him to get the ride. That's it. But then yeah. the, question, the question becomes, who's going to partner Dixon at Gas Gas? Yes. I do, I, do we know the answer on that at the moment? I believe yes, we do. Yamanaka. Uh, it, no, no, no. Yamanaka is switching across to oh, Gas, Gas, Gas Moto3. Moto oh, so, no, uh, uh, Guevara is going to go up yes. to the, uh, the Moto2 squad. So That's right. st- staying in the same team, moving up moving up the category to partner Jake Dixon. So that'll be Dixon's third season with the team, I think, next year. So good for him to have the continuity. Again, Jake Dixon, another guy that is kind of, you always have that feeling, he's kind of 95% of the way there. He just yeah. needs needs something to click, you know. But he's had a very good second half of the season, I think Jake has. You know, he always had that feeling that he was going to do a bit of a Sam Lowe's and crash out of good positions or a bit of an Aaron Canet to use a more recent example of that problem. But Jake is, although there's been one or two blips in the second half of the season, it's true because he crashed on the last lap at Aragon, for example. But he's been a lot more consistently running at the front and more consistently finishing as well. So, yeah, it's going to be good for uh, the Gas Gas team next year. Next bit of news is that the... Now, again, we touched on this in the last show, I think. So the two... Max Racing Team mechanics who were involved in that bizarre incident in qualifying where they effectively went over and scuppered Adrian Fernandez getting out on track at the time that he particularly wanted to go out to catch a toe and stuff. They, Although they had been, um, I think the term would be banned from attending the Phillip Island race, which is next weekend, and then the Sepang race after that, Max Racing have taken matters into their own hands and those two individuals have been dismissed from the team. So, I don't know, Jim, I think really Max Biaggi didn't have an awful lot of options on that one. I think, you know, that sort of behaviour is not what you want to see. And given that there are cameras everywhere, you have to question the judgment of people that do something like that in the first place because it was hardly as if they were going to get away with it unnoticed. So, yeah, they're gone. I am shocked it took this long. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I think that what they did was inexcusable and you know it's hey, you're gone. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I I don't know if Biagi was waiting to see what Dorna would put down or the FIA would put down as far as a penalty slash suspension kind of a thing, um, which they did, you know, you're you're banned for two races. Okay, well, you're lucky you're not banned for life, if you ask me, from that paddock. Yeah, but I uh, mean, there are obviously protocols that have to be gone through because that Max team is a European team. So there are, you know, European laws that come into play in terms of, you know, the procedures and the protocols you have to go through in terms of um, dealing with wrong or negligent or or unsporting behavior, however you want to term it. But anyway, they're gone, and I think that's the right the right thing to have done now it kind of segues into a piece of news that we feel it's right to touch on although we we don't want to dwell on it too much just at the moment but for anybody that is actively watching social media which let's be honest most of us are most people won't have failed to notice this rather bizarre video clip that emerged over the thailand uh, MotoGP weekend just gone now, this is from Thailand 2019, and it involved Tom Booth Amos, who at that point was racing in his first season in Moto3, first and only season, I think, in Moto3 for the CIP Green Power team. 
it, it was a clip that was taken midway through the race. He had broken down and had returned to the pits. There was a bit of a, let's say, a altercation, war of words outside the pit tent, because obviously they're not in the main garages. They're out the back in the paddock. But he and the crew chief had a, a an exchange of words, which were probably not terribly polite. You then see Tom walking back into the tent and said crew chief, whose name I don't know, and it's probably best not to mention it anyway, but proceeding to kick him at least twice that I could see. And it looked like kind of throw a, a bit of a punch on the back of his head, as well as an awful lot of shouting and expletives, no doubt. So quite how and why this video emerged in the way that it did is not entirely clear. There is a suggestion, and again, I don't want to skate on too thin ice here, but there's a suggestion, I believe, that the said crew chief had moved across laterally to the Max Racing team. Now, whether he's one of the two that's just been got rid of, and maybe that was a convenient kind of cover for that action to have been taken, I don't know. Don't quote me on that one. I don't know, but I've heard one or two people speculating that it might have been the same individual that was involved in that incident as well. But clearly this is lifting a lid on a dark aspect of the sport that, as I say, we're not going to get too heavily into now, Jim, because we want to get into the racing and talk about some slightly more pleasant things. But perhaps it's something we'll touch on once we get to the off-season. And as it happens, I had been having some communications with uh, Maddie Scordia, who's uh, a MotoGP journalist. Uh, we referenced her a little while back because she wrote a very brilliant article in and around the Suzuki withdrawal and what kind of perhaps contributed to Suzuki pulling out. She's just released a piece which is shining a light on her experience as a female in the MotoGP paddock and that of other females that she's spoken with, although understandably not necessarily naming people. And there's clearly some big issues that need to be sorted out here. Um, I don't know if you just want to have a quick word on it as well, Jim, but we're not going to dwell on it for too long now, but we will do later on for sure. Yeah, this is mm, disturbing at best, possibly. Mm. It is a very ugly side that is emerging here from the corporate brand identity, clean as a whistle image that MotoGP is is or does portray it is shocking that this has come to light it also is interesting that this comes out a few weeks after we learned that MotoGP is going to Saudi Arabia they're going to Kazakhstan they're going to, to these countries that are basically we know are they're chasing oil money and oil funds uh to have races when you have a results of a poll that you announce or a survey sorry that you announced that says we need to bring more women into the sport and expand it to everybody and include everyone and in all of this and wow this comes out like that's a sucker punch to the gut that's there the sad thing is will be what will dorna do about these things that have come to light i you know what someone says i believe what they say I have no reason to doubt, Maddie, that any of this happened. She was there. She saw it. So she knows what happened. Yeah. It's uh, this, But I will take her word at it. Okay. We have seen now video proof of what happened to Tom Booth Amos. 
I don't care what anyone says. That is far and away completely unacceptable behavior of a mechanic team personnel slash to a writer. Now, Dorna should do needs to come out and say something about this. The you know words are one thing. Video is completely different because everybody can see the video. Many of the instances Maddie talks about, you know. I wasn't there. You weren't there. A lot of us weren't there, but we can make a judgment by what she says. Yeah. I, I think it's much different with the video because we can all see for our own selves what happened. Now, Dorna, unfortunately, has a, I don't want to call it a policy, but they have shown instances where they don't like to tread into murky waters. I give you Peko Banyaya and his drunk driving incident in Ibiza. Yeah. Okay, I get it. He was in a car, not on a bike. But again, the FI or the FI, I think I said FIA earlier. It's FIM I was looking for. <laughs> FIM. I, yeah. I get it confused, guys. Uh, because the FIA for Formula One, when someone does something wrong, they're very much in front of that. And there's a, pre a press conference, a meeting. There's a discussion about it, what happened, what we're going to do to correct this. And we move sort of move forward and you you pay a penance. You're doing some form of road safety work or something for the for the FIA. Now it'll be interesting to see what the FIM and Dorna decide that they want to do about this. They chose to do nothing. But again, I think they're at a point now where they their their hand the hand the card's been dealt. They can't bluff anymore. There's something wrong in the paddock. So they need to at in my mind, the bare minimum, they need to announce an investigation into this video. Okay. Not to anything that's alleged or written, just the video, period. And they need to yeah. say, we're doing an investigation at the very minimum, and we will conduct that investigation and we will determine whenever, when we file, when our findings are done, we will let you know what happened, what we're not going to let happen again. And this is how we're not going to let it happen again. And if they don't do any of those, I think it's a, I think they're in trouble. So that's where I stand on it because um, I don't think that's even remotely acceptable for a world level sport that has billions, according to the survey, watching. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, this is obviously going to rumble on a little bit, and we won't. Yeah, this, this is going to go on forever. Now, but you know, Maddie has had reason to uh ask dorna as the you know the sporting and commercial rights holder and promoter of the sport you know what happens when people say things to her which you know are just simply unacceptable to say to another human being and or in this case you know tom booth amos being let, let's say what it was it was a physical assault i mean there's no other way of saying it if i walk into the office tomorrow and I kick somebody a couple of times because I don't like what they've done, and then I punch them in the head. Chances are, I'm I'm getting a visit from the police for that one, and I'm probably going to get charged with you know assault. So let's say it as it is, and there is no context or there's no shades around it. Uh, I mean, yes, you can say that some of the young riders, well, not necessarily just the young ones, but are guilty of behaving in a way which is petulant and and. And bad, you, you know, we've named names on this show recently with some people that have a bit of a track record on this one. And I can think of, for example, you know, at Cota last year when 
Ethan Guevara. Do you remember his rear shock failed? He went into the pits. He's kicking, you know, the paddock stands around and it hits somebody on the leg. You know, you know, he didn't mean to do it, but, you know, he lost control. So, but, so there's always sides to stories and, you know, behaviour sometimes does get a bit out of hand, but this does sound as if it's more of an endemic sort of problem within the paddock. And my fear is that Dorna will do what Dorna usually does, which is basically not a lot or, or nothing. But they might find it a bit more difficult in this case. So anyway, we're going to see if we can get Maddie on for a chat, um, as I say, at some point in the coming weeks or possibly once we get into the off-season, once we get past Valencia. And we'll have a proper chat with her about this. And, um, you know, we don't want to pee all over the sport that we love, but it is our sport and we don't want it sullied in the eyes of the world's media by this sort of thing going on. And to hear that this is prevalent and common is very disheartening as far as i'm concerned because you know we love racing we love going and watching the competition but we have to acknowledge that it is a still a very male dominated sport a very white dominated sport as well and competition of this sort does attract a certain type of alpha competitive apex predator type of person and that person can equally be a female it's true and there are more females coming into the sport both in terms of crew and competitors but it's still heavily weighted towards men and you know so we've got to just acknowledge it and not be all woke about it i mean that's the last thing that any of us want uh and i hate that sort of thing anyway but you know this was a physical assault so it would be remiss not to have mentioned it so there we go if people have a view they can write in and tell us about it jim but it does segue rather neatly into something that you spotted earlier which was a piece by matt oxley so i'll let you just sort of um, lead into this because it's kind of related to the sort of the toxic thing that's starting to become a bit more of an issue, I think. Right. So Matt Oxley had an article in Motorsports Magazine stating how he had been banned from the Ducati truck or the area of the team. And he's not allowed to interview any of the engineers, any of the riders, talk to any PR people. He has been banned. And it started when he did his article after Hareth about front tire pressures where he was given by another team's engineer a sheet that showed that basically Benyaya, who would won, did it with a tire front end that had pressure that was lower than what was allowed by the rules. And that kind of soured on Ducati. They didn't like it because there is no penalty for it at the time or, you know, because it's subjectively ruled there. It's no longer going to be possible next year as every team will be mandated to run the exact same pressure tire pressure monitor that will be then broadcasting the pressures to Dorna so they know who and who is not running below the, the tire pressure that Michelin mandates. But with that, he then was, you know, talking, he kind of went on and talked about how the next thing that was there was, you know, after that was that started the whole problem, but then he got into some other stuff with it and he was brought in and said, you know, hey, look, you can't talk about the team like that. He was sort of berated, belittled a little bit by the press officer, by the engineering staff, other people, that this isn't acceptable. You can't write what this is. So there was very much Ducati trying to control the narrative of what happens and what gets written about them in the press. That's that's oppression. That's Matt's job is to tell us, the fans, what he knows from insider information. He never said which team gave him tire pressure information. He just said an engineer in the paddock handed him a sheet. That's it, right? That's yeah. his job is for all of this. It's his job. 
Right. So essentially, you know, he he is, you know, been doing his job and now Ducati doesn't like what they write, what he writes anymore. And it's, it was something to do with Jack Miller, too. I read it this morning and I, I didn't get a chance to make notes on it beforehand, but it was something that he was doing with Jack Miller. Essentially, he had asked the question about, I think it was like him going to KTM and whatnot. And the press officer basically told Jack, you, you, you know, uh, no, you, you can't say anything, you know, this interview is over kind of a thing. And Jack kind of looks over and says, I'll tell him whatever I want. <laughs> good old Jack. Good Jack. Good on Jack. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's sort of, you know, Hey, look, now you're not allowed to do that anymore. So Matt Oxley always sets up all these interviews with, with engineers and crew chiefs and asks them about their bikes. And it's usually a really great article at the end of the year about, you know, what worked, what didn't work and what they need to do better. And it's a great insight. Like his rider interviews where they teach you how they ride are fascinating tidbits. Well, there won't be any Ducati stuff in there anymore. And there's not going to be any, any of the riders anymore in there. So it's like, oh, you know, wow. Hmm. Okay. So again, Dorna needs to, I don't know if Dorna needs to do anything about this one, but the fact of the matter is, is that there's obviously goes to show there's something dark happening in the paddock that we are just now becoming aware of that this can blow up and get out of hand so quickly unless Dorna decides to get on top of this fast. So, I mean, that's where we are there. I did see one piece of news. Forgot to talk about it there. Mm-hmm. Um, Pekka Banyaya is saying how he hopes that Inene Bastianini will be like Jack Miller. Mm, good luck with Why? that. Good luck with that one, pal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that's like, going to happen. I'm like, whoa, okay. Good luck with that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't think so. Mm-hmm. He's not going to be, he's, I, you know, I'm not saying Jack rolled over by any stretch of the imagination, but if you think he's going to be like Jack and not really be a thorn in your side week in and week out, yeah, you're, you're vehemently mistaken. He is trying. He the he can wants to walk over to the factory team and basically put his feet on the desk and knock Benyaya's feet off the desk. That I think um, I think Jim, recent events of the last few months, at least anyway, have kind of told us or painted a picture of Peko Banyar that he kind of lives in a slightly altered universe to the rest <laughs> of us in terms oh, of yeah. what what he thinks is right and wrong and and likely and unlikely and whose helmet design you should wear yeah because that was another piece that that oxy wrote about that basically ducati didn't like either and we spoke about it at length on the show as well so we won't retread that but yeah i mean that seemed a bit of a desperate one from barnyard to come out with a statement like that uh we were saying on the show last week weren't we that he's gonna have his hands full with bastianini next year for sure uh, now, it happens to be the case, as we'll come to shortly, that Banyaya's 2022 title hopes might have taken a slight sort of upturn uh, based on what happened in Thailand. Still four still four races to go, but... Uh, three. I, yeah, three I now. think... Sorry, I beg your pardon, three. But, yeah, I think for him to suggest that Bastianini's going to be a, a Jack Miller kind of character on the other side of the garage is, is wishful thinking beyond any sort of uh, credibility whatsoever. So, yeah. Now, if he um, thinks he's going to be a prankster like Jack Miller, okay, I could see that. But that's uh, that's not how I interpreted that. No, he's an assassin. Maybe I'm wrong, you know. But Bastianini uh, is, is an assassin, I think. You know, he's oh, yeah. an assassin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's his job. Uh, I mean, he's not there to be best friends with Banya. I, it's, it's a bit odd because I think they're both kind of VR46 kind of uh, 
graduates. I think Bastianini was certainly part of the VR46 camp for a period of time, although I think he might have sort of broken away latterly. Um, but there doesn't appear to be a great deal of camaraderie despite their shared nationality. So I think it's going to be, yeah, fisticuffs in that team. And two Italians in an Italian team is a recipe for, you know, uh, combative behaviour. <laughs> if you're listening, please, please, please put a little camera in the Ducati garage facing Tardazzi and <laughs> uh, uh, Chibati. Yeah. And... I want to have it there, and then you know how they put the little picture on the side where the with, with the pylon. I want that camera just running all the time on that pylon because when Bastianini goes after a move on Benyai, I want to see the reactions in the pits. I do. That's theater. That you can't. That's Shakespearean theater right there. It's going to be wicked. I'm a little bit. I just want to briefly touch back to what you were saying about the Matt Oxley piece, though, Jim, because I don't like this thing with Ducati sort of banning journos from talking to their people. That is a disturbing kind of development. Now, you know, around the world, we can see politically things lurching towards the right and the kind of the strong arm kind of tactic, and it's our truth or my truth, you know, Trump's yours sort of thing. And it's like, no. You know, we need to be talking about factual information and what's actually happened. And for a team to sort of draw up the bridge like that and say, no, we're not talking to you anymore. I just really think that's bad. Uh, and I don't expect, again, I don't expect Dorna to do anything about this. I, you know, I think it's going to take some fans sitting in the grandstands with placards saying, Ducati, you know, sort yourself out. Um, but <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's a bizarre thing to have happened. But kind of leads on to another piece of slightly contentious news i suppose depending on your point of view and that's the 2023 calendar that has now been released now what have we got here jim is it 24 races next year uh 21 i think right 21 sorry yeah 21 21 so we're starting off in portugal uh let's just let's quickly run through them so portugal uh, then we go to France. Then we go to Kazakhstan. No, no, no. no we go. We go. Portugal, oh, I beg your pardon. To I'm, Argentina. Going to, I'm sorry. I'm going down the list, not across. So yeah, Port- Portugal, Argentina, uh, Circuit of the Americas. Then we are to at one Jerez. of only three Spanish rounds at Jerez. Yes. Then we're to France, Italy, Germany, uh, Holland at Assen, of course. Then it's the Kazakhstan Grand Prix. So that'll be on uh, the beginning of July. Then we're back to the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, Austria, Barcelona, San Marino at Mazzano. So the first half of the season, let's say, is relatively traditional in terms of the European rounds. And then things start to get a bit tougher in terms of travel and schedule and stuff. So then you go from San Marino, we go to uh, an inaugural Indian Grand Prix, then Japan, then Indonesia, then Australia, then Thailand, as we've just been. Then Malaysia, then Qatar, and then finishing off uh, our favourite um, go-kart track in Valencia. So, I mean, that's a pretty gruelling punishing schedule, and particularly the last, well, let's say the last third last of that, five, which is yeah. pretty much all fly away. But a lot of back-to-backs in there. There is a summer break, um, which people will certainly uh, be happy about, I guess, in terms of recharging batteries. But... Yeah, I mean, it's a, a big old calendar, that, Jim, and that's going to put a lot of stress and strain on the teams, uh, more more so the teams than the riders, I'd suggest, because, you, you know, um, it's a big old job moving that circus around from country to country. So a couple things for me. Yeah, yeah. One, 
we were not going to Qatar in March anymore. So I'm wondering if it being in November under the lights, if we'll have less issue with the dew and the moisture in making the track potentially slick because it's colder temperatures in November than it is in March. Although maybe they're the same because you're roughly half a year apart. Yeah, I don't know. We need, need Martin to yes, get back we gotta on find tell us Martin about that. He, live, he lives there. <laughs> so Martin, write in, tell us. We need to know. Tell us. Okay. Yeah, come on, Martin. Let us know what the weather's like in November in, in Qatar. <laughs> so, of all the Spanish tracks, you decide to eliminate Aragon? Don't. I, I mean, I'm so irritated by that. It's, that it's one beyond belief. Ticks me off. Yeah. I, I'm so I'm sorry. I would toss Barcelona before I tossed Aragon. Hundred percent. I I totally love Hereth. I love the tight twisty layout. I think there's some great racing that happens at Hereth. I'm all for that. I think there's great racing that happens in Aragon. It just so happens it seems to be that it's with Moto GP than the little bikes for whatever reason. I'm not sure why it just does. But then Barcelona is a track that I just I. I despise for some mm. reason despite no. despite 2009 and the, the great rossi finish with with lorenzo we can't race on a legacy like that there i just you know i mean uh, let me guess first reserve is aragon and you can probably you know and they're going to go there in july because kazakhstan can't get homologated or whatever right something to that nature Who yeah knows? i mean you're, you're right to point that out i think um kazakhstan is it the indian track yeah they're both kind of provisional uh pending sort of sign off as it were but yeah i mean it's a travesty for aragon to be gone i you know i i get that it's kind of very remote there's not much around it in terms of places to stay and so on but uh, the other thing that's sort of a little bit kind of i'm a bit sort of incredulous about it is the fact that they've left valencia as the last race because i mean valencia at the end of november i mean you're virtually into december there yeah that is that is going to be cold i mean valencia is a fair way it's cold wet you know i can't understand why they didn't perhaps put valencia i know it's traditionally the last round but i don't think anybody would lose too much sleep if no. valencia disappeared off the calendar altogether but i wouldn't like why they haven't put valencia and Jerez and swapped those around because it would be a bit warmer, certainly drier, and a bit lighter, uh, given its geographical position at Hereth at that time of year. That seems very, very strange to me. But anyway, I mean, let's let's see how it goes. But clearly, there's no the, Kimi ring. No, I think that's, that suddenly that's, just disappeared. It's gone. Right? I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen, right? Full stop. No, now, I think that's gone. I believe that since we are in India, we are at the Buddha circuit. I believe that is the racetrack that he built for Formula One. Mm-hmm. Uh. How many years ago? Ooh, 10? Probably 10 years ago. I was yeah. thinking 10, 12 years ago. Mm. So who knows what shape it's in? Because I'm not, I don't think India is a big race fan, big race people thing. So I don't know how the tracks look and looking, you know? Yeah, so, I'm curious, Jim, to know because the reason why Formula One stopped going there is because they got into all sorts of problems with the teams having to put down massive deposits of cash to import all the equipment under the the rules that the Indian government or the provincial government perhaps had in place so i don't know if any of that has changed uh but you know i can understand moto gp wanting to go to india because that is a you know a massive market when it comes to two wheels i think there's a different discussion to be had about places like well okay saudi arabia is not on this list because that's due to come on i think 
hopefully you'll see later but you know Kazakhstan you know you go to some of these places and there's basically there's nobody there it's kind of sports washing it's kind of oil money and kind of credibility base for the country that's paying for the race to go there yeah it fills up the coffers of Dorna handsomely it's true but you know we're losing starting to lose European races which is the homeland and the sort of the history I think there's probably going to be a bit of a move towards alternating um, events so for example you might have a French Grand Prix one year and then it will switch to Germany the following year, perhaps, because a lot of these European races are not government funded. That's you know, right. They, they struggle to make a profit. Saxon Ring isn't on the list. It's gone. Yeah. It is gone. Mm. No, it's there. Hold on. No, no, no. Never mind. No, no. Sorry. It's Bruno. It's Bru- Bruno is what I'm thinking. Bruno is gone. I got yeah. Eastern Bloc countries. I'm just. Yeah, kidding. no. Bruno is gone. And that's a real yeah. shame for me. Now, we know, again, we know that that track had been struggling financially and, uh, you know, they just can't compete with a, when a a, a nation that's rich in a natural resource of one sort or another comes along and basically pays for the race to go yeah. there. So yeah. that's that's the challenge, isn't it? And it wouldn't, I mean, it would be not so much of an issue if some of these tracks were interesting, you know, in terms of the actual tracks themselves. But a lot of these places are so bloody bland and, you know, just featureless and boring. Oh, yeah, but that's just... what's cool about India, because India is my third favorite Tilka track. Number mm-hmm. one's Turkey, right? That track off the chart, off the hook, right? Yeah, th- yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Number two is 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 actually the first of the Tilka drums, Sepang. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting track with some difficult corners and whatnot and some fast sweeps. It's got a good mix. India is the same way. It has a neat layout. And I, ever since I saw a Formula One cars race here, I thought, ooh, MotoGP would be cool to be there. So I'm excited to go there. But... Sort of, sort of remember the 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 track uh, in India, and I remember it being pretty good. A bit of elevation change no, the there. Elevation, it was kind got of... some quick flicks. It's got some, a twisty bit to it, a long straight. That's yeah, halfway around the circuit, so it's not the initial straightaway. It's you know somewhere else. And yeah. So I, yeah, I I see it as being somewhat interesting. But anyway, that's the I mean, calendar. Let's, let's be honest. You know, the only <laughs> the only constant is change, as they sure. say. So. You know, things are going to change, uh, but there's quite a bit of change coming in terms of where we're going. So, yeah. okay, so we better crack on because um, yeah, we're already, gonna, already, yeah. already overrunning. So, just a few <laughs> quick bits of uh, superbike news just before we get into uh, the Thailand races. So, uh, Jorge Navarro, uh, Moto Two refugee, but he's going to be heading over to World Supersport. So, he's effectively going into the Tenkate Yamaha team to replace uh, Domi Agata, who's won the championship with them. In World Supersport this year, and he's moving up to the GRT team in World Superbike for next year. So Jorge Navarro will be leaving the Grand Prix paddock. I don't think that's a big surprise, Jim. Not much to say about that, I guess. Really, um, yep, agreed. Been pretty absent this year. Um, but BSB. So Tom Sykes, who's been in British Superbikes this year, has had a pretty underwhelming return to Britain, which I don't think was a necessarily a huge surprise. Although he spent many, many years in BSB, but has very much got used to running around on international kind of circuits as they have in World Superbikes and with a lot of electronics in World Superbikes, whereas there are very little electronics in BSB. No traction control or anything, for example. Anyway, he is, uh, this isn't official, but he is strongly tipped to be going back to World Superbike and joining the Pedicini Kawasaki team. Not kind of one of the preeminent teams in World Superbike, but Tom Sykes is a hell of a rider and, you know, had 
his world championship on a Kawasaki a few years ago. So he's got form there. So we'll see if that becomes official. And then uh, just last bit of World Superbikes, uh, Jim, this will be interesting for you, of course. We've got yep. Portimao this weekend. I think this is the only racing going on this weekend, actually. But yeah, so Portimao World Superbike and Jake Gagne uh, coming across from Motor America with his... His crew, you know, his whole crew. Russian lean, uh, something or other, Yamaha Attack squad. Yamaha. Attack, yep. Yamaha. Russian lean. Attack Yamaha. Yeah, it's, so, it's, it is... Sorry, I didn't interrupt you, Rich, but it is no, it's not a secret that I think it's Richard Stromboli owns Attack. Mm-hmm. He wants to, he wants a World Superbike, yeah, let me try this again in English. <laughs> he wants a World Superbike spot. He wants a World Superbike team. That's what he wants to do. So, I man, maybe he goes to, maybe he builds a team and goes with Jake to World Superbike next year. Who knows? I'm really fascinated to see how this pans out. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, again, you sort of touched on this, and we're not sort of dumping on Moto America, but there's a kind of a, a relatively small sort of premier division in Moto America, and then a, a bigger a bigger league too. Let, let's kind of put it that way. And Jake, although he's had some tough competition with his teammate Cam Peterson and uh, Matthew Schultz, is it? Schultz? Um, Schultz. Scouts, uh, you've had PJ Jacobson doing pretty well there this year as well. I've really enjoyed Motor America this year, it's true, but you do tend to have kind of six to eight bikes that are really at the sharp end. Obviously, we've had Petrucci as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how Jake gets on in his second shot at World Superbike, although obviously it's only this this one round at the moment, but maybe it will lead on to a, a more of a full time thing perhaps next year or the year after. So that'd be good. Um, just a very quick bit of BSB news. So we had the second round of the showdown. Uh, the weekend just gone, Donington Park. So, mentioning Tom Sykes having had a pretty lackluster year, he turns up at Donington Park, which is more of a circuit that is, you know, let's call it, uh, it's not an international circuit anymore, and I suppose certainly not a MotoGP circuit anymore, but it is more the kind of tracks that he has been used to over the last, what, decade or so, I suppose, since he's been in World Superbikes. So, Sykes, he rolls up and wins two races uh, on the bounce, didn't look as if he was going to win the third and final race of the weekend, but actually got taken out um, <laughs> slightly sort of ironically by Jason O'Halloran, who'd been taken out fairly sort of comprehensive. Well, had been involved in a crash and then taken out uh, in two races at Alton Park last weekend. So, yeah, um, poor old Jason. I mean, talk about history repeating itself. He's had a solid main season, as he did last year, and then he gets to the showdown rounds and it just all goes hideously wrong. So... O'Halloran had a pretty big uh, collision with Tom Sykes, took Sykes out of the third race, uh, certainly took himself out of the race. And he's now, to all intents and purposes, I think, even possibly mathematically now, out of the um, British Superbike kind of title chase. Brad Ray won the third race and he's now 66 points clear. Uh, one round left at Brands Hatch, three races, so there's 75 points left on the table. As I say, he's 66 points ahead, so it's going to be, I think, a bit of a formality without wishing to jinx him. But Brad's had such a strong season and such a brilliant start to the showdown that I think he'll wrap that up probably in the first or second race at Brands Hatch. Might try and get along to to Brands if I can when that happens. How long of a drive, Rich? Oh, it's a full two and a half hours, so it's a biggie. It's a biggie, Jim. You better pack yeah. snacks. Have some yeah. crisps on board just in case. 
like you like you going off your weekly shot <laughs> so um we'll see that's uh next weekend i believe um rumor mill suggesting that tommy bridewell is going to head over to uh, the pbm ducati squad so that's where tom sykes has been racing this year so on the assumption that sykes goes back to world superbikes as we just said strong rumors linking tommy bridewell heading over to pbm ducati to replace him and now this is a, an interesting one uh, a rumor cropped up over the weekend in bsb that to take over the spot that could be vacated by tommy bridewell who's also on the ducati but for the oxford racing or oxford products racing ducati team one Danilo Petrucci's name started getting banded around. I got one now, thing to say about that. Yeah, go on, please. If Petrucci's aggravated by lack of medical <laughs> assistance slash help slash whatever in Moto America, <laughs> wait till he gets the BSB and rides on some of those really small tracks mm. with little to absolutely no runoff. I mean, yeah, I get it. There's some tracks here in America that are that have some sketch to them, but given where he's, where we're going and this is not to derate or degrade BSB at all. There's more runoff of the Moto America tracks than there is at say Ulan park or, uh, Codwell, you know? Yeah. I, so I, the thing about BSB, I mean, there, there won't be any issues with marshalling and medical precision. That, that that's, that's not a problem that we that have not here. Not like, you know, the marshalling issues that have been highlighted in America. But, I mean, he will find some of the tracks challenging, I think. Equally challenging, if not a bit more so, in one or two cases. I mean, it's a bit weird, British Superbikes, in the sense that we have Silverstone, Donington, which are sort of full-on international-level tracks, all the way through to places like Thruxton, which is just so fast. Um, as you say, Cadwell Park and Alton Park, which, you know, take quite a bit of learning and are a bit of hair raising. I mean, there have been plenty of a World Superbike rider that's come across. I'm thinking of people like uh, uh, David Giuliano. Do you remember that name from a few years ago? He was a Ducati works rider uh, for a couple of seasons in World Superbikes. He would have been teammate probably to Troy Bayliss, I guess, around that time. Hmm. He came over I don't remember to that. BSB when things, you know, started to shut down from World Supers, and he lasted all of about two rounds, I think, if not even the first round at Brands Hatch. And he was like, "And Brands is not, you know, by the standards of say Cadwell, is not that sketchy." But he was done, <laughs> you know, he was done within one round. So I, I'm a bit skeptical about the Petrucci thing, uh, particularly as you say, Jim, given some of the things he had to say in Motor America. Uh, at the beginning of the year, but we'll see. We'll see. And I, anyway, the fact that Petrucci might not stick around for a second year on the what's the Ducati team War in Motor America? Warhorse. I always call them Powerhorse. Warhorse Ducati. It got it got me to wondering about who might fill that spot because I think did they have uh, Loris Baz last year on that bike? Who was on the Ducati mm. last year? Was it, I was thinking Hector Barbara, but I don't know that I don't think okay. that's right. But it was a European rider. I believe and, so, yes. Uh, or somebody from the European series, let's say. And it kind of got me to wondering. I, I was thinking that somebody like Josh Brooks, who's quite likely not to stay in the PBM Ducati team in British Superbikes, he'd be a good fit over there. I'm all for that. He would be great, uh, I think, in Moto America. That'd make me rethink which races I want to go to next year. 
but that's not a rumor that or, or you know or anything right. that you've i've read that's, or that's of, just rich that's being rich pure you know uh sort of yeah speculation wish listing from me but i think brooksy would be good in motor america and he probably could do with a bit of a change to be fair yeah um, i think so i think no, just like the, i think he would like it here because brooks yeah. is an aussie right yes that's right yeah yeah i think he'd love it here He's two-time BSB champion, so he's got real pedigree, you know, but has not had a good season this year. Really, it's all gone wrong, and I don't think he'll retain that seat. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's looking for passes new. Um, Anyway, last thing to mention with regards to the Donington round of British Superbikes, and this is uh, not a good one, I'm afraid, but it would be remiss not just to mention that in the... At the end of lap one on the third race, final race of the weekend, uh, Chrissy Rouse. Now, uh, that's a name that will be familiar, I'm sure, to the British listeners, because Chrissy and his good mate Dom uh, Hebertson, who's a very, very good real roads racer, uh, they have a podcast called Chasing the Racing. Now, Chrissy's been running in BSB this year um, on a BMW. He, it, it wasn't really, thankfully, it probably thankfully it wasn't really caught on camera he high-sided coming out of the final turn goddards on lap one and from what i can gather was hit fairly hard by a rider behind i don't know who it's not relevant uh he sustained a very serious head injury now quite understandably and quite rightly news is pretty thin on his condition it doesn't sound very good i mean everyone's just sort of um got their fingers crossed and hoping that he makes you know a recovery or at least a partial recovery so we'll keep an eye on the news um thoughts are with the team and with his family and all of his fans um that's about all i can say on it really but yeah that was really a a a nasty end to what had been a, a pretty pretty good weekend up until that point um so that's a bit of a sour note to finish off the bsb coverage um i don't know if you got anything else to say on that one jim but... uh, just just thoughts and prayers you know that's all yeah. we can do right now yeah just before we get into thailand probably worth just touching on the gino ray uh fund because obviously that's a a similar situation of a rider that took a big hit uh in that particular case in the suzuki hour now hopefully listeners will remember a couple of weeks ago we put a, a shout out to see if we could raise some funds we've had yeah, one very, very generous donation, it must be said, which Motopod is going to match. Um, uh, it's been a bit underwhelming, I think, probably the response, Jim, if I'm honest. Um, hopefully a few of the listeners that sort of contribute to the show, maybe they could divert those contributions to the Gino Ray Fund instead. Uh, that would be good if people could do that over the coming few weeks. I, I had a quick look on the, uh, the GoFundMe page for Gino. They've got, as I mentioned, when we did the little shout out, they've got a target of 125,000 to try and raise. They're up to 77 or just, just shy of 77,000. So they're making good progress. We wanted to try and put sort of 500 to a thousand into that pot if we possibly could. So we're kind of reliant on, you know, our listeners to be generous on that one. And as we said, we will match whatever the listeners contribute individually themselves. So we'll touch back on that. Um, and just on a bright note, before we go to Thailand, I've been meaning to mention this for weeks and weeks and weeks, but I went on holiday to France back in August. And whilst I was away, I read John Hopkins' book, Leathered, and I can thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. I, I think, actually, Jim, have you read it? Or No, I didn't know he had, I did not know that he had a book, so I must acquire it. It is proper, tell all, no warts, uh, you know, hidden from view. It is 
um, quite a quite a read, I must say. And I would love to do perhaps it's an off season kind of book review thing because there's so much interesting stuff in there about his journey. We all kind of knew that John was a bit of a party animal and had a bit of a kind of checkered path through parts of his MotoGP and latterly World Superbike and British Superbike career. Um, but he really kind of just tells it all as it was. It's ghost written by oh, Matt Roberts, who's a, a guy that w- will be familiar uh, to many people because uh, he's a commentator on uh, Eurosport for British Superbikes and World Superbikes. And uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant read. So, yes, try and see if you can get hold of a copy, Jim, and then we'll do a little bit of a review perhaps in the off-season when there's not much racing going on. So I've been meaning to mention that, but I tweeted out a little while back, uh, or perhaps it was on Insta, I can't remember now, but um, just to say I'd read it and how much I enjoyed it. And John Im- immediately came back, you know, obviously hoping to get the old book sales up a little bit. But um, and we must try and get a hopper on the show at some point, mustn't we? Because he'd be yes, great. He'd, he'd be, be great to get yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a great read. So anybody that hasn't read that, I suggest you do your best to go out and get a copy to uh, to have a read because it's brilliant. Anyway, MotoGP Thailand. All right. The racing, Moto3. So qualifying. The rain that everybody was predicting going into it was not there for Saturday. So we at least started the morning dry with it. So in qualifying, the first qualifying session, this is interesting to me. Munoz, Guevara, Garcia, Tatai, Falon are in. And you wouldn't expect to see Garcia nor Guevara there. Mm. Like, woo, the championship leader and his closest competitor have to get through Q1 to get to Q2. This is going to be fun to watch, right? (laughs) It was. uh, It came down to the very end. Garcia had a chance to make a lap and be in there, but he was dawdling along. I do not understand why he was dawdling when there was very little time left. It's a time management problem that I don't understand what he, he was doing. It left him sick, so he didn't make the cut. So he didn't get to go on, which... Okay, you shocker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just what what what? I don't know. But that left Falon, Guevara, Ferrasada, Munoz to get through. So then we get to to the second qualifying. Honestly, the second qualifying did not go like I expected it to. It was literally Foggia went out there and just said, "Okay, I'm going to go faster than anybody." Oh yeah, by the way, that's a lap record. Oh yeah, by the way, I'll do it again. That's another lap record. <laughs> so Foggia just shows up on pole with record laps then masia who has had a bit of a resurgence here now that i guess his contract has been figured out and that he has a place to go that eases the mind of the rider sometimes and you get a result so he was second quick uh sasaki continuing on a great run of form to be on the front row then it was nepa and uh holgardo was there uh and then Marrera was sandwiched in between nepa and Hor- and holgardo so it would be to be seen what would happen on race day so race day dawns and it's a bright sunshiny day. Again, we're still there's rain supposedly. It's Thailand. It's equatorial. It's supposed to be there. There hasn't been a lick of rain. Like every practice session to through Moto two qualifying to Moto 3's race was is not affected by rain. And you would have thought for sure somewhere we would have been. But they're not. It's, but. it's noteworthy, Jim, isn't it? Because the forecast going into the weekend, we should just say for anybody that didn't know this, was that it was going to be wet all weekend. It was going to be kind of like monsoon. Well, maybe not monsoonal, but certainly pretty, pretty wet consistently all weekend. And up until, well, up until Sunday later on, it, not a drop. <laughs> yeah, not a drop. Uh, we did learn, in case we didn't mention this, that Yamanaka was going to go to the Gas Gas Moto 3 team to replace either, Gar- either Garcia or Guevara. Take your pick. But anyway, as the as the race started off, 
Foggia took the lead, quickly followed by Nepa, Sasaki, Masia, uh, Moreno, Munoz. Guevara was eighth at the start, so he had picked off a few people there. Then Garcia was down at the last turn, and he was with down with uh, Adrian Fernandez. Now, it was not Garcia's fault, as much mm-hmm. as you may think that it might have been, nor was it really Adrian Fernandez's fault. Now, yes, he did high-side himself, but he was not in there too deep. It was just a matter of no grip on that side of the tire, and it tossed him. But he then body slammed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> literally, literally, his body slammed into Garcia and put him down. Luckily, everybody else was able to kind of manipulate their way around bikes and riders, but that pretty much spelled doom for Garcia. Now, Garcia did remount. He did get it running again. He was a lap down. He was then sort of in the chase with some people for a little bit, kind of a la Aragon. Am I right? That Aragon, Rich? Yeah, Aragon. Yeah. Uh, yep. Where he was black, black flagged for riding around the lap down in, in pack of riders that he didn't have no business being in. He kind of almost did the same thing again, but before anybody could really say anything, he simply retreated back to the pit lane and called it his day. He did, As oh. far as I know, he did not get a black flag or a warning or anything like that. Or was it Mizano where he got the black black flag? Might have been, I... Might have been Mizano. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He, doesn't matter. Yeah, he, he did. He did the same Pick thing. Your and got a black flag. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> been a disaster for Garcia, isn't it? A total right. disaster. So Fadji and Sasaki start to pull away. It was interesting. Fadji seemed to have some pace or whatnot. Uh, Suzuki had a problem. He had a mechanical problem with the layup hard. I do not know what it was. Did you pick up on it, Rich? Because I don't think anybody really understood what it was. I didn't see anything written about what no. it was. I mean, it looked like it was a transmission thing, perhaps, but yeah, uh, hard to, hard to know. Knows. Hard to know. On there, uh, Munoz, who had come from his starting place, uh, well down because you know, uh, Munoz did not qualify very well. He had come to the four, he was like third, uh, slightly, you know, with like maybe 10 laps to go in the race. Rossi, Ricardo Rossi was there as well. Um, so Munoz was definitely, you know, playing for keeps with everybody. And that kid is a racer, he is a Sunday kid. I mean, I don't care where he starts or what track that he doesn't know or knows or not knows, I don't care. The kid just comes alive when somebody waves a green flag in front of him. He seems like it's like a, like a bull when a red flag, right? He just charges through the pack. It's an all or nothing. If he, he if you pass him, he attacks you right back again, sort of all la Troy Bayless. The kid's just, I tell you, because didn't uh, we don't know where he's going next year if he's staying at the same team. No, do we? No, no news there's on a that. Que- there's, that surprises no. me because mm. he's worthy of a top tier moto three ride and, and honestly with Foggia leaving i really thought that leopard would take him because mm. you had suzuki you could have suzuki there at the old steady hand you bring munoz and you just put him on a wicked fast bike and woof. <laughs> i yeah. was I, I just they didn't you know i know i mean they didn't it's, it's sort of surprising to me that he's going to spend another year and i don't mean to call it an inferior team but i don't know a better word to use um that's not one of the premier okay, okay let's put it that way he's not going to be on a premier team next year he's not on either tech three or the ktm io squad gas gas or um leopard because leopard's really the only people who've got a honda that's worth anything uh, is there still a spot left in the tech three team there might be a seat up for grabs there because mm. on tuesday and i don't think adrian fernandez will be staying put there it hasn't been nothing's been said that so, I am aware of. 
Uh, I mean, I think, did we say uh, Yamanaka's off to uh, one of those teams? But I think there are still one or two slots. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's curious that Munoz and the other one I'd say probably is Diego Marrera as well. Sorry, Diego Marrera. Yeah, Marrera, those two kids are fast. They are fast. I mean, but but Munoz is definitely the new Dennis Onchu, isn't he? Of a, of a few years ago, I mean, uh, he's pretty. But he has wild. more restraint. He's got more restraint, I think. Ooh, I, really? I, I, I Ooh. yes, yes, I do. I'm sorry. I, I I hate to disagree with you, Rich, because you're right on everything. But it's, it's, I I I see Munoz as riding. There are occasions when he is wrong. Okay, I give you Aragon. But more times than not, in my opinion, with my eye, he is tough and aggressive, and that's okay. Oh, uh, sorry. No, I'm I'm 100 agreeing with you. I, I, but I think he's he is at the moment, and I suspect we'll see this most of next year. He's the sort of standout guy that will, as you said, do the Troy Bellis thing. He will come straight back at you. And just it doesn't as a matter, matter who you are, just as a matter of principle, or yeah. what turn. And I yeah. love that about the kid. And I think he's. You know, he skated a bit on thin ice this year, and he did, as you just pointed out, he got the long lap in Aragon for the kind of barge on Fernandes. And he comes with a reputation of that sort of riding style. And, you know, but he's fighting up front, isn't he? So it's for a team to manage that, really, uh, in a way that we've kind of accused perhaps the, the team around Onchu of not perhaps doing that quite as well as they might have done and perhaps that's held him back a little bit oh yeah no Munoz is uh, is a singular talent and it's going to be uh, very interesting to see how he gets on next year and indeed where he ends up if he if he does change which which maybe he won't I mean to be fair to that team he's been running up the front pretty much all season hasn't he so you know maybe he doesn't need to move I mean but surprising that he hasn't ended up in the IO team I thought that would be a, <laughs> a nailed on certainty for him to go there yeah, or Husqvarna with um with Biagi. I don't know. It's Sasaki. I, I'm guessing Sasaki will stay put, but McPhee is out of that team because he he has to go because of his age. So there there is a slot there. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm convinced either Munoz or uh, Marrera's Marrera got that one. Got we'll that get, one. I would we'll think so. One. Oh yeah, I can't. Yeah, they have to. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Anyway, well, speaking of long laps of inconvenience, uh, Anshu had to take the long lap of inconvenience, which I think this time is a very big inconvenience because that lap takes a lot, lot out of you if you take that one because it's all the way around, what is that, five and six? So it is the long way around to, to kind of spoof Ian McGregor. I'm going to refrain from having a massive rant, Jim, because <laughs> we're already running over time despite the fact that we said that we wouldn't. But, I, you know, this long lap thing is just so stupid it's beyond belief you know i you can't have a long lap that's longer at one track than another otherwise it's not an even penalty no it's not it's absolutely stupid i mean if somebody makes a, a you know a rule infringement or whatever the thing is they should just dock them some time and then this long lap thing is just so inconsistent i mean silverstone it was cost it cost quattro what a, a second ride and a half right through oh, well well yeah but something that's consistent for everybody, you know, the long lap is, I mean, it was long. It was, I mean, it was a proper long lap penalty, wasn't it, in Thailand? Whereas at Silverstone, it was literally an inconvenience because it cost you nothing by comparison. And, you know, points win prizes and championships are won and lost on small margins often. And, you know, people could quite, I think, justifiably point to the fact that they got a long lap at, say, Thailand, which cost them 10 places. 
as compared with their, their rival that won the championship, who got a long lap at Silverstone, and it cost them two places. You know, I mean, that is a genuine gripe, and I just think it's stupid. Anyway, rant yeah. over. <laughs> yes, for not, least, for not having one. a rant. Yes, for, yeah, got to have at least one. <laughs> got to have at least one, right? Uh, well, by halfway through, Guevara was seventh, so he was moving along. Uh, Fagia was wide at turn 12. Track limits started to become an issue with everybody. Uh, with that move, Sasaki lead. Sasaki led only for Thazia and the Honda to go blowing by on the thousand meter straight from turn one to turn two. It's like uh, he didn't even need a draft. Thazia was that much faster. Again, the Leopards are wicked fast in a straight line. And uh, we don't know why. Um, I'd love to be able to talk to someone who may know something about that. But let's go on from there. It looked as though uh, that there was definitely a two rider group with about seven laps to go. You had the front four. They had about two seconds over Marrera and Masia. Uh, they were that way. Uh, Masia and Guevara were held up, had got held, held up. Uh, Masia had lost the front at that time. They almost went down together in a heap, but they saved it. So Guevara kind of escaped uh, any kind of penalty. He could ride conservatively because this time his board was showing that Garcia was out of the race and was not going to collect points there. Uh, again, five to go. Fagia. Um, Rossi now and Sasaki had become the front group. They had a they had pulled away from Munoz, Guevara, and Mino, who had rode stealthily up to show up in that sixth place in the race. Uh, Guevara was in wide at at uh, the at uh, at uh, turn three. He lost a couple of places for that one and fell back. Fagia then sort of dropped the pin on everybody and was gone. He had, with one to go, he had a 1.1 second lead over Sasaki and Rossi. They would fight it out to figure out who was going to, who was going to finish second. And basically, as that lap wound down, uh, we had Fagia winning. Sasaki would take second. Rossi would come home third for a podium, which is really good for Ricardo Rossi. Started yeah, to show great. some form. Yeah, there, you know, which is kind of nice. He's been at or near the front here relatively quickly. Uh, then you had Nepa with a great ride to be fourth. Guevara would come home in fifth uh, after he was after getting banged around on that last lap a bit. Uh, he did mm. get a little roughed up, but he did sort it all out there at the end. Marrera would be sixth, uh, Mino seventh because uh, Marrera got Mino at the last turn, I think. I'm not exactly sure, but I think that's what had happened. Masi was eighth, and Munoz ninth, and uh, Yamanaka was tenth. That is the top ten. But the question then was, what happened with the championship? Because that's really what the whole story is the championships now. With uh, Garcia not scoring points again, I think twice now in the last three races, he hasn't yeah. scored points. Mm. Govar has busted out on to 265 points. Fazia has jumped up to second at 216. So there's a 51 point advantage that Fa uh, Guevara has over Fagia. So it's possible with 75 points in play that if Guevara wins either Malaysia or Australia, he could be crowned champion before we ever get back to Valencia, which would be interesting because that'd be the first time since what? Oh, I'm trying to think of who was the last, last Moto 3 guy to win a title at the last race. Because usually that, because it or ha, not to win one bef to be crowned champion before the last Arenas. race. I think it was Arenas at Portimao, wasn't it? In the but COVID though, I thought season. Portimao, okay, Arenas the COVID system with one round to go, right? Because it's mm. Portimao then Valencia. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Yeah, could be. I was thinking or, it was the last was, race. Yeah, I can't. But I was thinking I was going back to um, Wamir 
was what I was thinking because he had okay. wrapped up the championship on the Leopard Honda at like Malaysia. And there was still Australia and um, Valencia to go in that year, which was 2018, 26, 17, 18, something like that, somewhere mm. in there. So either way, uh, yeah, by 17, I think, right? 17, 17. So anyway, uh, that's the championship with then Garcia losing uh, now on third. So he is seven points behind uh, Fazia, then Sasaki, and Masia onto his sixth. Suzuki, Mino, Horgardo, and Marrera, the top 10 in Moto 3. Rich, any other little tidbits of Moto 3 stuff that you'd like to toss in? Uh, the only thing I've got to say really is it's just the frustration of Dennis Foggia, who's kind of untouchable at one race and then can't score a point at another. It's just bizarre sort of form, which is kind of the Dennis Foggia we've seen for years and years in Moto3. So high time he goes up to Moto2 and let's see. It tends to take the Moto3 guys going up with a few rarish exceptions. It tends to take them a while to find their feet in Moto2. I mean, even the great Pedro Acosta has had a bit of a stop-start season. I know he's had a, a major injury in there as well. So I'm kind of fascinated to see how Foggy gets on. Uh, is it Ilhel Trans that he's going to? I think can't can't quite remember now because that was announced a few weeks back. But um, he's going to a good team in Moto Two anyway. So, but you know, arguably Moto Two is even more stealthy in terms of the fact that you need to be consistent and consistently at the front to have a chance of the championship. So he can't afford to have sort of weekends on and weekends off as he has always seemed to have done in Moto3. So, But, yeah, I mean, it was a great, great weekend for Foggia, wasn't it, this weekend, just gone, uh, both in terms of practice and qualifying and obviously in the race where nobody really held a glove to him. Yep. All right, let's look at Moto2. The qualifying in Moto2, again, there's no rain. Hasn't rained yet. It's supposed yep. to. Hasn't. Yep. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> so uh, Vietti, uh, Roberts, Lowe's, and Audiger are in that – first session uh and they had the other tie rider there uh kubo uh he was down in that first session uh, in um and uh basically he had set a fast time i guess what i should say is that he fell down kubo fell down or no was it kubo I'm trying to think who knocked roberts off it was Arenas, sorry in the second session mm. I'm, I'm, I'm out of I've got things misplaced here. Sorry. It was, uh, my it was fault. My yeah, fault. It was. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so we actually had Vietti, Roberts, Lowe's, and Aldiger all in the first session of Moto2. Kudoba, uh, Kubo, sorry. Kubo had went down in the session. So he had fallen in the session. But his time was good enough to get him through. Vietti was fast enough to be the fastest person. Kubo was second quickest. Then it was uh, Bo Schneider and Joe Roberts going through. So those are the four guys that got out of that session into the first. Noted that, like, Cam Bobier was actually in that first session, or in the second session already, which is kind of good for the Americans. But Chantra was just fast. The tie rider, there was, the best thing was all the support that Chantra had. He had shirts and people and everybody. <laughs> he looked like a MotoGP star with all the people that just came out to support him. I thought it was brilliant. I loved every bit of it. And he was fast. He did not disappoint. He would take the pole. It would take pole position. Arenas lost the front and then his bike slammed into Joe Roberts. And Joe Roberts, I think, was just sort of, I want to say, putting around the outside. I think it's 
five, turn five, because I was four, is the first right-hander after you get through the lefts of 12, one, three, and then four. So I don't think there was enough heat in the front. Lost the front, and the bike careened in and literally cleaned Joe Roberts off the bike. Like, he didn't know it was coming and just mm. there. Arenas was – Roberts was shaken up. He was in the gravel trap for quite some time. Arenas did run over right away to check on him. And, you know, it, it was not – yeah, it was Arenas' fault, but, hey, that thing kind of happens. And it yep. was unfortunate that Roberts happened to be where he was on all that. That sort of took all of it. Kanet um, was down at turn five. So he's figured out how to fall again after Motegi. So he's got a theme going, uh, you know. But uh, poor, I hate to be that way with Kanet, but he has had some poor qualifyings and some some mistakes that really he shouldn't make, but he does. It's easy for me to say I can armchair this all day long. I'm not on the bike. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it wound up with Chantra, Arbolino, Ayagura, Pedro Acosta, and Vietti would be there. Um, what... One other interesting thing that happened was uh, with in, Kub in uh, Kubo's pit. I don't know if you noticed this, Richard. And I, for whatever reason, I happened to catch it. There was very little time left to play, like right around about a minute. They showed Kubo's team, and they had a big digital clock that was very visible inside of their garage that was counting down. And it so happened that we happened to have the time on the pylon on the left side of the timing screen. And they were off by about five seconds. I did see that. Which, yeah, I wondered if that was interesting. Was... I would think that somebody's job is to start that when the horn blows or the whistle blows. And I could see being like a second off, but you were off by like five seconds. And that's to me, that's like huge. Like if you're mm. trying to back time a lap and get where you want to be, that clock should be in sync to that. So again, this is irrelevant, but it's just fascinating to me. So is it? I would think that the teams would be connected to like live timing and scoring. To where they would have that the time would be exact, like, like they'd be cued into that, like like that would be something that would be provided by Dorna in the, in the, in the in the sanctioning of the event that you have a a clock or something that's synchronized to the time of when things happen. It just was really weird that it was that way. It just it was an oddity. I liked it. I was wondering if the kind of the timing bar that we get to see on the TV is sort of delayed a bit. I wonder about that too. And stuff as well. But it was quite a big time difference, wasn't it? So like you said, it was four or five seconds and seemed too much. And if it was that, delayed, it would, it would have been, if, if it would have been delayed, our clock would have showed, would have shown, let's just make an example, would have shown like 55 seconds. And then their clock would have shown like maybe 50 seconds, yeah. right? Because we're delayed by five seconds in case something happens. And I, I do think the feed is is off some for those reasons that we, you know, have been said about Malaysia many, many years ago, that, you know, you have a chance to kind of keep things away from prying eyes, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would have thought it would have been that way, but it wasn't, it was the other way. It was like, there was less time on the pylon than what they had in the clock, which is why I caught it, I think. So mm -hmm. yeah, curious. It, it's just curious. <laughs> it's curious. Anybody knows, let us know. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by this for whatever reason that's there. Uh, let's get to the race. Now the race. Well, Where'd you everybody's start with <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. We are on the grid and uh, it starts to rain. Finally, the rain has come. <laughs> yeah. About time. If you keep saying it's going to happen, eventually you're going to get it right. I and mean, that's what we say about weather here in the States. 
So when rain happened, we had to go to the rain procedure, which immediately changed the system. So instead of 24 laps, we immediately dropped to two-thirds distance, which would make it 16 laps. Now, I've got a, another grumble. Please grumble away. Why? Why do they do that? Why, why such a big reduction in the number of laps? And I'm thinking of this from a fan's point of view, not so much sitting at home in my comfy armchair, but you know, if you've paid, I mean, I don't know what a ticket costs, but this could happen anywhere, right? And you know, if I'm sitting in the stands at Silverstone, having been relieved of say three or four hundred quid, Ooh. I'm feeling a bit peeved if suddenly a third of the race is gone. Now I get that they lose a bit of time, so they could lose you know a couple of laps or whatever, which is what happens in MotoGP. But for Moto three and Moto two, they immediately take a third off the race distance. Yep. I'm thinking, why? Again, I'm, I'm I'm uneducated on this. Perhaps there's a perfectly valid reason for it. But it seems a bit tough on people that have turned up to the track. I'm going to speculate here. This is what mm. I think happened, and that this is by no means the definitive answer. I'm going by what kind of happened at Coda in twenty in the COVID season of 2021. We had the bad crash with Moto Three. We tried to restart or whatever, and then we said, "Nope, we're done, and we're not going to do this again." Okay. The reason being for that was twofold. One, there's a certain amount of satellite time that's allotted to get a MotoGP race live back to Europe. And the teams need to be able to get to Austin because I think they had to be in Puerto Mayo the very next weekend. So they couldn't miss flights. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened there. I'm assuming, assuming drawing that there's satellite time in a window for MotoGP that if they don't take time off of the Moto3, Moto2 race, they'll run out of satellite time for the MotoGP race. Now, I do not know if that's true, it's what I think is happening. Yeah, it's logical. It's logical. But it seems pretty tough on people that have paid a hell of a lot of money in most cases to be at the at the race. I mean, I, I get that, you know, a wet race is generally slower, so it will take up more time. And if you have to delay the start the way that they did that, that costs some time as well. But th but this, for Moto3 and Moto2, it's just a blanket rule that if, if the start is delayed or they go to the wet procedure... They instantly just had a third of the race, and I, yeah, you know, I just think it's a bit curious, really. And again, it's kind of your your point about you know the holy TV schedule and all the rest of it, and the fact that the the championship is so tight logistically from getting from one place to the next in time. It's kind time of commerce. Wasn't really a matter this time. There's a week off. Well, in this particular case, that's true, but you know, but it's just you know commerce overtaking sport again and you know i would say entertainment in this particular case i mean there's an argument to say that perhaps nobody wants to be sat around for hours on end in the pouring rain but or there's worse places for that to happen in thailand because it was pretty hot there but anyway yeah just i just thought it was a bit um yeah suddenly to have 16 lap race yeah just a bit of a disappointment really but anyway that's just me that's just me what was interesting was the amount of work that was being done to the bikes on the grid. They were swapping the wheels to go to wets. They were winding out preload and front forks like there was no tomorrow. And a lot of teams were changing shocks on the rear. Now this caught some people out because the rule states that when the three minute board goes up, you have to, ha you essentially need to be done working on the bike. Yeah. Albert Arenas, Gonzalez and Delaporta all got taken off the grid much to the chagrin of Arenas because he was a little bit miffed about that. Fine. But that's the rule. You can't be working on the bike. You have to evacuate. So they were moved off grid 
finished the work in the pit lane, and they were allowed to start at the back of the grid. So a bad day for Aranis Del Porte and Gonzalez just to start. So I think uh, they it was because they went to the warm-up lap. They were allowed to then follow behind and then start at the back of the grid, correct? Or was uh, it from pit lane? I think they might start from pit lane. Actually. It might have been pit lane. Yeah, I thought I, I thought so. they were allowed to catch back up after that, but I think it is pit lane. So you know, anyway, you you were working on the bike under two minutes, you're done. Got to go out of there. So can I just say, yes. Jim, as well, no. at this particular point, as well, there was this really unfortunate, difficult situation where it was absolutely belting it down at one end of the track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the start finish straight at this point, it was still inverted commas dry i mean it had been spitting a bit but it was absolutely coming down cats and dogs as we say in britain you know at the far end where the sort of the hairpin is at turn what was it turn three three Uh, it was soaking wet so just one of those weird situations where you get these sort of severe sort of heavy showers but they're so local that literally one part of the track can be flooded and the other part, bone dry, which is kind of what happened at the beginning of the Motor 2 race, although it wouldn't stay like that. Mm, yep. So uh, Acosta was at the start. Acosta was wide at the start. Chantra had the had the whole shot. He uh, Acosta turned right wide at turn one. Bobier had moved himself to second in the shuffle that had taken place with all that, thinking, wow, here's a chance for Bobier to shine. It's the rain. Uh, motivation, go off the wind before you go back home. Uh, no, he touched the he touched the paint. Stay off the paint, Cam. Everybody knows that. And tucked the bike and was down at turn four. Uh, because he did, did brilliantly for half a lap. It was great. I, I already <laughs> yeah. had the flag out and the national anthem queued up, so I was, I was, <laughs> I was, I was set. Um, only to be disappointed yet again. So I was, you know, wiping tears with the flag anyway. Uh, I thought we're oh, uh, Aldiger has was down on the first lap, he was down at turn one there. Uh, Chantra would then would then crash at turn four. Uh, the back end basically tries to pass the front because he was just going way too hard into it. And all the Thai fans went, ah, because their Ooh. man had, you know, who had <laughs> promised so much. And he was gone. There was no reason for Chantra to be riding as hard as he was. Okay, that's hindsight. I got it. But yeah. Chantra legitimately did not have to be going as fast as he did. Because he, he there was already three laps in the race gone, and he was at least almost two seconds ahead of everybody else. The board should have been telling him to easy or or you've got a big gap something so Chantra wasn't pushing as hard as he was I think in fairness Jim with the way the conditions were in the Moto2 race I guess even from one lap to the next with the amount of water that was coming out of the sky it could have been just massively wetter on that third lap compared to the last lap through I I guess I mean uh, just so hard I mean it's a lottery those conditions really I think that's why there's a thing a lot of saying is the worst place to be is first in the rain Especially well, when it's changing, because you don't know what the corner is going to be like. You're the first person to get to that corner after something's happened in the past minute and a half since you've been there last time. I've got a problem with that saying. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm going to go, go right, go right off script now. It's like with soccer, right? Not that I, I, I do everything I possibly can to avoid watching uh, football because I detest it. But you're I will Brett, watch... you detest football. I just uh, absolutely okay. right. loathe football, but I will begrudgingly watch things like the World Cup and the European Cup from time to time. And you can always guarantee that one of the pundits at halftime or at the end of the match, let's say, will say something like, oh, they should have scored five times. It's like, well, no, because if they'd scored one of those first few opportunities that you've just referred to, then the entirety of the rest of the field of play would be different. So the 
the goals that you think they should have scored would never have even happened. Because, do you know what I mean? It yeah. can't happen. You've changed history right. by scoring a goal. Correct. So all the, all the chances that come after that, non-score, don't exist anymore because you have to take the ball back to the middle of the field and the whole... So this thing about the first person to arrive on an incident on a track is always the leader is not true because it could rain and it could be the back marker that gets to it first. But it's something that always gets said and it's I don't think it's quite correct. <laughs> Anyway, sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm no, no, off. it's fine. I like that. For no I, good reason. I've gone off on one. <laughs> that's fine. Somebody I, did say it at the weekend. And I'm thinking, well, that's not actually correct. I mean, you could be trending around in tenth place, and suddenly you encounter a shower on the track and be the first one there. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I look at it from the stand. I look at it from the standpoint of and changing track conditions. And maybe I see this differently because of dirt track and the dirt's always moving and changing. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that. In that time that you've gone, you know that maybe something has changed. And no one's going to put up a flat. They will tell you there's water, right, by a, a, a rain flag, per se. But there's no way to gauge if it's raining harder or less hard than when you were there the last time. And that's how I see it. Yeah. yeah. So you, so you have... You have great credence to what you say because it's true, <laughs> right? You, you, the guy in tenth could be ten seconds behind the next guy that went by. He's not going to have any reference point of, oh, hey, it started to rain harder here, so he could quite possibly fall off as a result. But yeah, doesn't matter. It's, it, I'm a being pedantic son of a b as usual, but you know, you, that's what you I hear, love about you, Brits. You just you heard, you know. hear pundits saying these things, and I think, oh, no, that's not correct. <laughs> that's a completely bonkers thing to say. Anyway, it doesn't uh, matter. All right, fine. We so you went off the rails. I'm going off the rails. At least, at least <laughs> this time, unlike Formula One races at Spa, where they go, it could rain on part of the track, but on the other part of the track, they did not say that in this one. They just said it was <laughs> yeah. raining in parts of the track. Okay, yeah. there, <laughs> there. That's my bitch. <laughs> They didn't say that, so I'm happy with it. Anyhow, oh, where the heck were we? Oh, crazy things were happening. Oh, Tantra's just gone down. Tantra's <laughs> just gone down. Uh, Lopez goes to the front for a little bit, followed by Kinnett. Dixon looking solid there. Then Lopez has a moment with the front that's there. Cannon then goes to the front. Uh, Slatch is with him at that point. Dixon's kind of falling backwards, but Slatch is kind of like the fast guy there. Somewhere in the mix is Lopez Arbolino, who is kind of the fastest guy on the track. He's kind of turning the best times. Again, he's got reference points, Rich, because everybody go. else got through. <laughs> Sorry, I had to be a bit of a, a bit of an ass there on that. Hat Touché. Touché. Yep. Anyway, Ayagura is in the, in one, two, three, four, like sixth place. Roberts is with him right there. Uh, then it's Augusto Fernandez, Kubo, and uh, Sean Dillon Kelly. First time we've seen him anywhere near the front, and it's a wet race. So yeah, yeah. I, I, okay, American pride restored. I don't know. I, it's, it's like, okay, well, let's see what happens here. Uh, you got down to it. They had uh, Salach had then gotten by Canet because, and then Arbolino came by that as well. So we had Salach and Arbolino out front, and then basically uh, Salach goes wide. Arbolino leads the race and then as soon as arbolino kind of this is kind of cool arbolino goes by and arbolino kind of puts the old finger up like hey we need to stop this race it's raining real hard we're aquaplaning and sure enough boom red flag okay it was it did it was raining hard very hard yeah yeah the water was starting to puddle okay we can't race through puddles you know i mean as much as what the old timer in me says yeah we race through puddles no it's 
It's a different world, a different place. It's fine. It became known that, hey, look, we are going to go restart this with a five-lap dash for the cash, which was even shorter than Puerto Mayo earlier this year, which was seven laps that mm-hmm. they got to run. Now, they had gotten to the point where at 60 seconds, pit lane opens, and you've got 60 seconds to get out of pit lane and get to your box spot on the pit, on the on the track. And sure enough, it started raining hard again. It deluged again. So it was delayed. The race was delayed again. So everyone is just there trying to figure out like, okay, what, what, what are we going to do now? No one knows. Everyone said, okay, well, we're going to go out for that quick restart procedure and then torrential rain again. So we had the potential of starting. We couldn't start because it rained again. We waited a little bit. We tried one more time and then that was it. They said, Hey, we're done. There's no more restart. So Albert Arenas wins. Now I'm confused by this one, Rich. Arbelino. Arbelino wins, right? I was right. But here's where I'm confused. Doesn't the don't aren't you supposed to go back one lap from when the red flag happened? Which means that Arbelino wasn't leading, it was Salach. No, so they Salach go back to the they go back to the previous sector where and in that oh, particular case sector. they just they had just gone over the start finish line. Oh okay. so that that going wide at the last turn for Salach cost him the race, as it would turn out. I mean obviously he didn't know okay. that at the time. I did not realize it was last sector before the Yeah, last. they changed I, it a couple of okay. years ago. Yeah. Well, silly me for not knowing the rules. That's why I have well, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that's that's the case. They certainly used to go back a lap. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was def- working under. Was that something? Def- like, oh, definitely flat yeah. wins. Yeah, so but I'm like going, what? I think it wasn't the answer. Since the timing got so accurate with the you know the three or four sector times that they post now, they yeah, I'm sure they go back to the last sector that the leader completed. I think that's the rule. I don't think it used to be that you know I had to have a certain number of people that were going through at any given time. So that's why they went back a lap. But now well, that makes yeah, sense. So I'm yeah. pretty sure that's the way it's done. So hence why Arbelino uh, got the nod. So uh, he was a happy lad, wasn't he, in part firmly? The cool part is, is that this is the first time half points have been awarded since. Go on, I have no idea. 1988. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, Matt Oxley tweeted it because uh, okay. David... David Emmett tweeted, when was the last time half points were awarded? And like, bang, like right after that, here's Matt Oxley. Like, it was 1988. I was there and I can't remember the track, but that was when half points were were awarded. Right. So I, yeah. So with that, let's, if we know, uh, try to think of like who won, who basically won was Arbolino. Second was then Slatch, correct? Yeah. Because for some reason, they, List isn't on the MotoGP site. Says the data is not available. Not sure why. Okay, I've got I've got so the list written. You got the here. list. If you could tell yeah. us how I, the top ten finished, I would appreciate it, Rich. Yeah. So Arbelino, Salach, as you say. So Salach, you know, looking pre- pretty miffed. Oh yeah. Because I would have been. Know, he was close to winning his first race there, but uh, Aaron Canet, um incapable of finishing a race in the dry, but can <laughs> finish on the podium in the wet. I mean, just bizarre, isn't it? Really, but. Um, Jake Dixon came in fourth, so another strong finish for Jake. Uh, then you had Lopez on the Bosquiskira. Uh, so Aguirre came in, what's that, sixth. So that was pretty handy, given that he finished just in front of uh, Augusto Fernandez, who was seventh. Then Joe Roberts, uh, Kemeth Kubo, so the local lad. Local lad. Uh, 
uh, Vietti actually managed to finish a race, so that was noteworthy for him. And then, so that was the top 10, I think. And then Sean Dillon Kelly, worth mentioned in 11th place. So, you know, fair play, because that was that was a very, very difficult race to finish, full stop. Um, then you have Baltus, um, can't remember writing who was next along the line there, but I think Schrotter rounded out the top 15. That's fine. And then championship-wise... Yeah, I've got the yeah, points, This is where it gets so... interesting. Oh, so this, you go, this, is... this is juicy, man. So yeah. because you have half points, and based on Augusto Fernandez being relatively far down, Agura being kind of in the mix there, Fernandez leads on 238 and a half points, which I is... Hate this. I do, too. Well, I hate this. <laughs> I hate this, too. And Agura is now on 237 even, which puts him one and a half points behind. What yeah. was a two two-point lead that Fernandez had over Iagura at one point in the race was dead even if they mm. would have finished that way. It would have been they would have been tied for first. Now he, he you know Fernandez kind of catches the break, if you will, in this one with half points. And he's only got a half one and a half point lead heading into Australia. Yeah. I tell you this championship is wicked fun to watch as we're going to come to in a minute it's it's basically now a three three round championship yes isn't it i think pretty much you can you can take uh aaron Kinnett out of it he's fit he's not mathematically eliminated here people he's 52 points off of the leader um sorry he's 53 and a half, and a half. off the leader yeah. my yeah. fault I... sorry wrong column uh so basically He's almost done here. I think Kinnett will be eliminated in the next round, and it will be either Fernandez or Ayagura being world champion in Moto2. Yeah. And if Ayagura wins this title, it'll be amazing. I will be immensely proud of Ayagura. If Fernandez wins, I'll be immensely proud. But if Ayagura wins, you're going to feel really bad that he doesn't have that MotoGP seat, you know? You're really going to feel bad for the guy. And I kind of feel, because Aguirre's, being sort of forced to stay in Moto2 next year. I kind of hope that Fernandez does win the championship in a sense, because I think it's it's nice it's nice to go up to MotoGP with a title under your belt. And I've been a little bit harsh, I think. Well, maybe harsh is not the right word, but a little bit kind of critical of the sort of the stealthy approach that Fernandez has taken this year. He's won a two or three races, I think, hasn't he, this season? But... It's kind of been quietly racking up the points. But actually, when you look at him, he's very tall and he's probably one of the heavier riders. So I suspect in that sense, he's probably at a slight disadvantage of Moto2. And it might well be the case that, you know, the MotoGP bike will suit him better from the physical standpoint. I mean, it's obviously an advantage to be smaller and lighter, whichever class you're in. But I, I still think it's fundamentally wrong that Romy Gardner has been pushed out of that team. But, you know, that's not on Augusto Fernandez. It's nothing to do with him. I hope he does really well in MotoGP, and I would like to see him win the championship um, for that particular reason. But we must just mention a great comedy moment, Jim, which was okay. when the little golf cart buggy or the, the the stretch limo buggy thing was taking the three riders to the podium. So they go across the track. Why they can't walk is just beyond me, because it's literally like 20 yards. But they load them up uh, in part firme into this kind of golf buggy thing, mm-hmm. drive them across the track through the Armco barrier, and then they've got the little podium uh one, two, three steps on the other side of the track. Right. The little buggy thing goes through, starts reversing up and reverses straight into the Armco barrier. <laughs> it was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. So I, I tweeted out to say, you know, it's literally getting the case in MotoGP now that the recovery vehicles of one sort or another, whether it be two wheels or four, are becoming more dangerous than the bikes out on the racetrack because you've got 
um, Quattararo on head-on collisions on a recovery bike at Aragon, and then you've got the bloody golf cart driving into the end of the barrier with the riders on board. I mean, it was just a, a hilarious, really. They were all laughing their heads off at this thing. It was really, really very funny. But, oh, um, that's yeah. crazy. Crazy Moto2 race and good old weather uh, yeah, certainly shook it up, didn't it? Well, let's get on to Crazy Moto GP racing. How about that? Yeah. Uh, let's go through qualifying real quick. In the first qualifying session, again, dry. Mark Marquez, Oliveira, Aleish, Pole, Maverick. I mean, you know, hey, that one point, that had been a front row. <laughs> Such is the depth nowadays. So Marquez and Oliveira go through uh with last lap attacks that got them their positions to get out that being said we go to the second one um quattro was on top for a little bit then the, the then the ducati herd comes through uh you know they just essentially basically knocked him down uh to where you you had um martin on front then zarco quattro Miller, then Vanyaya would go to the top. Uh, Miller was in the pits. And then Martin went back to the top. Then Bezeki pipped him for the for a moment, and you're like, "Wow, that was out of nowhere." Where you know Bezeki was nowhere other than he was in that session, right? Mm. And wow, bang, he went to the top of the list. Marquez, fair play. He had a time going that would have probably got him third, more than likely fourth and qualifying because he had one soft tire left to use because he was in that first qualifying session but marquez made a bad mistake in the final turn lost both ends he did save it but it left him oh i don't remember rich eighth or Something so like that. yeah he must have yeah. lost sort of three or four tenths in he lost three or four tenths turn. and that's all yeah. you need to be gone because marquez did start uh down the down the thing I think it's worth pointing out, Jim. I think Marquez is kind of riding that Honda just about at the limit of the bike now. And I, think I do that's think so. Yes. Kind of where the bike is, isn't it? I don't, he's not going to beat a Ducati or Quattararo on the Yamaha. Not this season. Not this season. And okay, Mark is not fully fit, but I, I think even if he was fully fit, I think that's about as good as it's going to get with oh, the it Honda. Shows you, it shows you how, how bad the Honda is, shockingly. Like Honda, has, Honda usually does not get their sums this wrong. In this case, they have got their sums wrong, and it's drastically wrong. Uh, but it does go to show you the talent that Mark Marquez has to drag that motorcycle to the front like he has. It's like, oof. So, yes, that's a that's an issue. Now, I do love the idea that Marquez is riding these last four races. That gives him the ability to put some data forward that they can go back with the bike, especially after some very long days of testing in valencia right after the season that's still on right as far as i know mm -hmm. okay yeah. So, yeah. yeah um so then japan can go back and by the time we get to february they can do some real testing and hopefully when hopefully marquez has a bike that he's competitive with and they've, they've got the sums and they've got it right and they're not making the same mistake twice hopefully but that remains to be seen uh so uh did we have who was on poll yeah the zeki on poll um and whatnot so that's a great poll first poll for vr46 i believe uni first poll for bezeki all really fun cool little details there as well um i forget where they where did they i'm curious as to where it all came out now in q2 uh because martin came and tried at the very end to pip bezeki but he could not benyaya finished out the front row quattro was fourth then it was zarco bastianini miller 
you know, the top seven is all Ducatis except for one called Ferraro. Yeah. Dragging it out as usual. Yeah. Yes. Fighting the screen. Yes. So, yeah. Can we crazy. just say, Jim, as a little thing, a qualifying thing, uh, worrying signs of the old Vinales turned back up, you know, just could uh, not get yeah. happy, shaking his head. Getting very yeah. irate, you know, lots of arm gestures and movements. And I thought, oh, Alex yeah, this... was just as bad. I mean, they could not make the bike stop. It's sort of the same. Thailand is very similar in my mind to Motegi, absent maybe some of the elevation. It's a very stop start circuit with a few yeah. turns that you can put together. And the, the Aprilia is not a stop start bike. For whatever reason, the braking stability is not what it should be on that bike. I do think that it probably is going to be able to change that. But I, I, listening to the MotoGP sort of world feed with Matt Burt and stuff, they were saying that the you know basically the problem that the Prilia had both bikes was they just had no rear grip, so they just you know mm. the bike was trying to come around on braking into just about every turn. I mean, Alesh clearly wasn't very happy, but Maverick was starting to become the old Maverick of Yamaha or latter Yamaha days and just starting to kind of lose his what's it very visibly <laughs> and you thought oh dear let's not let's not go here you know yeah. somebody in the pit just needed to sort of calm him down a little bit um so it'd be interesting to see how things switch around at phillip island but anyway mustn't get ahead of ourselves but yeah, it was a slightly worrying sign that it didn't take much after you know a string of very good races i mean he's had a pretty stellar second half of the season maverick hasn't he let's be honest mm-hmm. and then it takes so little for him to unravel that's a, a bit of a worry really yeah for me you know he's so so fragile mentally that he just can't he can't keep that frustration in and it kind of all comes pouring out as negative energy and you think for god's sake man just sort yourself out and just channel that into solving the problem and if you can't ride around it as best as you can and move on to the next round you know he's not going to win the championship so yeah just slightly disturbing and i'm sure gary you know <laughs> gary Shaveton, who, who it's clearly not the you know Maverick's biggest fan in the world was probably um yeah shouting at the screen a little bit as I was on that one. So anyway, he had a slightly better Sunday as we'll come to. Yeah. So rain is still raining from the Moto Moto Two race, the conclusion of that. They declared it a wet race and they delayed it because there was a del another deluge had come through. So the race was now in a rain procedure, which meant that hey, we're not racing 26 laps, we're racing 25. Apparently, we only lose one lap in a rain race for MotoGP as opposed to the third of a race that you lose if you're in Moto2 or Moto3. I'm assuming I'm assuming MotoGP takes a lap off as a result of fuel consumption is my I, guess. I, I, guess. Not, I do not know I that guess. for sure, but I would think you would be the on and off of throttling and stuff and traction control hitting everything would, in my mind, would be more fuel consumption. Great. So they take a lap off for that it could be just time i i do not know but that's my thought so after about 55 minutes of delay we opened up the pit lane for 10 minutes and i'll let these guys go out and get some time on the wets in the track so a lot of people came around went back to the pits and did another lap uh, i think everybody did at least two laps to see where everything was and try to sort the bike and then they reported to the grid uh once the green flag was shown Bezeki Martin almost collided at, tur- at turn one. They both wound up going wide. Miller was had jumped to third. Uh, Pecco had, was second. Uh, Quattro almost lost it on the curb, but he saved it. He dropped all the way to 17th. The rain and Quattro don't seem to mix. I don't know if it's a Yamaha thing or just a Quattro can't ride in the rain thing. I don't mm. know which way it is. It's weird, isn't it? It's weird. 
he had a strong strong ride at Mandalika at the beginning of the season, which if you remember, that was quite right. a wet race. But because it was a new track, or pretty much a brand new track surface, certainly laid just at the end of the previous year, in the wet, it was giving up massive grip. So This track I, does oh, too. Uh, According so to what was, Simon Crafer was saying, yeah, so it's so even more bizarre to me, like yeah, and was it? I think it was this season, uh, or maybe last season. Perhaps it was last season. Lamore was a cold, wet race, and Quattro yeah. had a really good race there. So I think most people's expectation was that he would be okay in the sort of inclement, well, more than inclement, but I agree the, with the you, really bad weather. But yeah, he just vanished. Hasn't from materi- yeah, hasn't materialized now. Maybe having simply gotten a bad start, got pinched, I think, on the inside. You can't see very well. Okay, yeah. fine. Um, yeah. I'm, it was it was bad. Visibility was definitely bad. Um, maybe he just losing on that curve. He's like, I can't afford to lose anything else. I need to finish. Uh, this is going to be an attrition race. Now, it must be said that they immediately said after Bezeki's run wide thing and taking the lead. The race director said you got to drop one place because you ran wide turn one. Why drop one place? Why is this drop one place and not long lap of inconvenience? <sighs> right, who, Rich? Am I, am I right? Hell, I mean, this, who the hell knows? We're just going to make it up on think, a whim? I didn't even think he deserved a penalty. I mean, okay, you went wide at turn one, but you see that all loads. And I, for me, I was taking notice of did he sort of have a massive game in time? And from the way I saw it, and I've only seen it the once, I didn't go back and watch it again, but I don't think he really gained out of that first corner. And normally they give a bit of leeway to this sort of thing on the first turn of the first lap. And even more so, you would think in the wet, because it's much more likely that that sort of thing is going to happen in the wet. So why he was told to drop a place, I just... I've got no words really. I just don't I don't understand that one at all. And I thought it was really unfair. Mm-hmm. Now Marquez was lingering around in like third place behind the other guys. Uh Oliveira shot up from his eleventh starting spot to fifth in two laps. Now, this is the guy who has won in Porto Mile in the rain. He ran in one in Mandalika in the rain. This mm-hmm. guy's a bit of a rainmeister yeah. as it goes. So, okay, cool. I mean, he was charging. I mean, the conditions that were pretty sketchy, he was charging, which was rather interesting. So, Bezeki drops behind Miller now because Miller had passed Miller had passed Benyaya. And then, and that was at turn three. And, you know, Marini was then down. So, this is really hard to, like, figure out who was who in the poll because you have Marquez, M-A-R, right? Marini, M-A-R, Martin, M-A-R. So you got a J, an M, and an L. And I, you know, sorry, L's and J's look too close to each other for me. So keeping whoever was where becomes <laughs> difficult at that point. Uh, after only four laps, Oliveira was third. Oliveira had caught Marquez there. Now, there was in this middle little section, there was this thought that the rain had eased off and that it the track dries extremely quickly because of the because of the humidity and the heat and everything else. I'm like thinking, is this gonna be like a little Marquez miracle where he decides to take the other bike on slicks on a dry line like a lap or two before anybody else thinks about doing it and somehow appears in the front and nobody can catch him? Because that was my interest. It was like, oh, this is what there was a strategy component that's happening that intrigues me. I love strategy and thought and thinking through like what's gonna happen. So 
now to me, this is like, oh, it could become a strategy race of when to get off of wets. Let's go to slicks if the track is going to dry. Well, let's put it down this way. Spoiler alert, it never happened. The rain kind of increased again a little bit and it shot any concept of there being it. Although there was a fairly dry line through the turn four, the fast sweep, but I think that's more to do with everybody's on that line and these bikes do pump a lot of water. But everywhere else, it was not really a dry line to be found. It was particularly wet, wasn't it, on the long sort of, let's call it the back straight, but yes. going into turn three. And then that, that was they've never really dried out around that part of the track. And so I think slicks would have just been disastrous. No, there was no way. It was no way you could have even remotely have thought about it. But at the time, there there was a possibility that yeah, that I, may I, happen. I thought it was going to be flag to flag. But the other point that's relevant at Thailand in particular is that it's a really, really long pit entry that mm-hmm. you have to take so the the time lost to change bike is massive so i think it was always a bit debatable whether you'd ever make that back up again irrespective of the fact that it was still a bit wet in places yep so uh miller was leading Oliveira and then benyaya now marquez and his brother were turning fast last but and catching benyaya with about halfway through roughly but then benyaya just started to turn on laps like either was able to get heat in the tires or had become comfortable with the conditions or whatever it was, Benyaya's like, all right, going to the front here, kind of a concept. Again, things were starting to dry. Was there going to be a bike swap? Don't know. There wasn't. But then Oliveira got by Miller and proceeded to basically sort of run away with this. Oliveira just put his head down, turned in some lights, some great laps. But with roughly uh, 70-ish laps to go, Zarco just comes from nowhere. Like, this guy's flying. I'm like whoa i mean it was like he was setting consecutive fastest laps like benyaya threw a fast lap in right Mm. but but like zarko was the fastest man the fastest man again the fastest i think he did it like five times in a row to whittle to your road what had to have been a six or seven second advantage that the front group had over him yeah i mean he was was almost a second second he was taking a second a lap yeah massive yeah massive i mean the difference was you could visibly see Zarco and how much faster he was on TV, which meant he was really going fast yeah. at that point. Well, so it was like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, where, where is this all going to shake out to? Because with five to go, Zarco had gotten by Marquez and they did touch. There was a bump involved in that. Quattro was still down in 17th. Uh, Oliveira was, was leading. He backed off in the last lap. Miller was closing. Miller wasn't really going to, get by Oliveira unless Oliveira did really something stupid. He was managing the race at the front, which is what you need to do. He was riding no faster than he needed to to win the race, and that's what Oliveira did. He won the race. So Oliveira gets two wins on the season on the KTM. Miller second on the podium. Then you had Benyaya, Zarco in there uh, as well. So we had all of that. Uh, Marquez behind Zarco, Bashini there. Uh, Quattraro then, I think, Winds up, uh, oh, sorry, I guess I should finish top 10. Uh, after Bastianini, it was Vinales, Alex Marquez, Jorge Martin, who fell down the order. Bender got the final spot in the top 10. And then, lo and behold, we had Fabio Quattraro in 17th. So, Quattraro never went anywhere, never got anywhere, and never scored a point. Wow. Ouch. Ouch. At, at one point, yeah. Ben Yaya was going to be the championship leader. He got helped by the fact that Oliveira went on by. Uh, in, in, or I guess he, I, sorry, 
I said this backwards. I had it in my head just backwards. Benyaya sort of got screwed by Oliveira going by because if you would move, if you take Oliveira out and put Benyaya in the second, if Oliveira had crashed or not been there or something like that, Benyaya would be leading the world championship. As it stands right now, this world championship is a two-point differential between Fabio Quattraro and Francesco Pecco Benyaya. Two points. I can't remember a championship being this close in 500 MotoGP in quite some time. I mean, the top five are actually, if you look at it, Jim. Oh, yeah. Miller got himself close. back in the yeah, Miller I mean, came back in Not out of it by any stretch of the imagination. Miller's uh, 40 behind with three races to play and 75 points up for grab. Uh, anybody want to bet that Malaysia could possibly, but could put, but, eh. again, English, Jim. Anybody want to bet that Malaysia potentially could throw up a rain race? Very possible. It's possible. Uh, what time of year are we at in Phillip Island? I mean, it's normally pretty cold. It is cold. It's cold and windy, but generally dry. Dry, but it's the it's the temperature that tends to be the problem there with tyres. I mean, you can remember a few years ago, there was that race. Oh, they had to swap tyres and Barquez cha- changed on the wrong lap to his other yeah, bike because the Bridgestones uh, wouldn't go the distance. Yeah, well, to me, well, there was that one, and the one I was oh, thinking okay. of was towards one? the end of the race. You know, the temperature went down like five degrees, and literally in a couple of minutes, and, and people started crashing because the, oh, the t- yeah. tires just lost their heat. So it, it can throw up some real bizarre results, Philip Island, and you know, Valencia is quite likely to be wet at certain stages of the weekend because again, we're we're getting into November. Well, no, that is in November, I think Valencia, isn't it? It's a bit earlier than next year is going to be, but nevertheless, it will still be chilly and potentially wet there so there's a lot of jeopardy coming up and uh, i mean one of the other guys on one of the other podcasts that i listened to earlier on was saying you know this championship could well now be decided by who doesn't crash yeah that's a good way to look at it Uh, who that favors i I suppose you'd probably say that would favor quattro but if it's wet you know he's not got much confidence in the wet so i it's yeah Benyaya may yet win this championship for Ducati. It is entirely possible. Yeah, with being only two points behind. I mean, I think Quattro has only scored like something like 15 points uh, or something in the last see. three races. I mean, it's it's been turgid. In the last three races, he's scored eight points. Wow. Quattro got eight points in Japan. So yeah. it's like, it's very interesting if you look at Quattro's races over the time. So in Quattro, uh, in Quattro, in Qatar, he got seven points, then 20 points, then eight in Aragon. America was nine, 25 in Porto Mayo, 20 in Spain, 13 in France, 20 in Italy, 25 at Catalonia, 25 in Germany. The Netherlands got nothing. Great Britain, he got eight. Because the Silverstone, the speed of the track, right? Because it was dry. Yeah, had the short lap, short lap penalty as well. Short lap penalty, yeah. Long lap of inconvenience. <laughs> and then Austria was 20 points. Then we had San Marino was 11 points. Nothing at Aragon. Japan only eight and nothing at Thailand. Mm. I mean, to be That's fair to crazy. the guy, he's dragging results out of that bike like you couldn't believe. And certainly nobody else on the Yamaha's anywhere close to him. And by the way, sort of chastising him for being 17th is not being critical of him because I mean I, I, I think it's important to note that besides that 10 minute session before they went to the grid they had had no wet running 
all weekend. So, I mean, it was kind of probably not guesswork, but, you know, they haven't been to Thailand for a few years and the bikes are different now. So uh, there was probably a bit of estimation going on as to what settings to put in, in terms of dampers and spring rates and all the rest of it. So, and who knows if they had tire pressure issues again, you know, until the tire pressure sensor, as you said last week, comes in and sort of levels that one off a bit. Nobody quite knows what's going on there. So not, not a criticism of Quattro, because he's had a couple of good wet races in the last couple of times when that's happened, but it just went terribly wrong for him, didn't it? But what, what was more amazing than that, I think, Jim, was that Remy Gardner was the only non-finisher in that race. I mean, Marini crashed, but he got back on and he did finish, albeit two laps down, but unbelievable lack of crashes really when you consider how sketchy the conditions were so i have an interesting thing something i saw that i thought was very interesting it seemed as though it was much more obvious that the ride height rear ride height adjusters were working in the rain i don't know why it seemed so obvious in the rain compared to a dry race i'm my guess is is that because there's spray there's something that you can and then adjust your eye because you could watch the spray off the bikes mm. change. Yeah. So you could watch it. And I also think, I think I'm right. And this is how they work. Again, we got to talk to like Splalding on this. And this is one of my questions here is that I think when they turn the ride height on, it's sensing where the front wheel is. So it's like a slow pressure drop. So if you're harder on the gas, it would drop quicker. Mm-hmm. And so you're lighter on the gas, so it slowly goes. So I think those two things work to it, it was very obvious on the Honda with Marquez. You could progressively watch the bike become lower, which was very cool to watch. Yeah. There and, was some criticism actually of the coverage that the, there's far too much of Mark Marquez. Yeah. Uh, okay. Sort of, sort of on his own yeah. in fifth and not much of you know the battle up front. And actually, I mean, we we absolutely cannot mention the fact that well. This is not official, but Zarco, I think, was playing, playing by the Ducati wing, team orders. Wingman, wingman to Banyaya. Oh yeah, he could have easily, uh, he could have easily got past. Well, I say easily. That's probably no. I think not, he could have. I think he, he played the team order card. Uh, he pulled out of a couple of moves, I think, and decided, no, no, I know where my bread's buttered here. Uh, yeah. Um, whether that was actual team orders, you know, explicit team orders, I don't know. But, I think um, it's Zarco just being a good guy because he knows he's yeah. a prime ride. I mean, I was a little bit surprised to some extent that Miller didn't give up second. But then when you look at the points difference, I mean, he is still in the championship. Oh, please, Miller was not going to give up Jack to Ben Yaya. Well, he said he well, he's said for some races that he's going to do everything he can to help him. But right, but also but, on the other side, it's Jack Miller, and he has a ride at KTM next year. True. Okay. True. So why not go out with some victories? Now that being said. I think after you get past Phillip Island, because I think Miller wants to win Phillip Island beyond all. I, oh, yeah. I, Miller is looking. Miller's yeah. had this circle on the calendar as the, as the race that I want to win, right? So, I, I can't wait to get back to the island. I, I, I love the island. It's amazing, right? Miller's going to win there, and then he'll give up points to Ben Yai in Malaysia and Valencia. That's mm. what I think is going to happen. That would be sort of poetic and romantic in a way, wouldn't it? Although, as we said last time, I mean, I think for me, Banyard's got to go out and win it for himself. And to be fair, that podium was a big step towards it, allied to the fact that Quattro didn't score any points. So I will say this. It's going to be interesting. Quattro has three non-point scoring finishes. Benyaya has five. Mm. That's going to be one for the record books with like 
you know, a champion having this many non-point scoring wins. And how many not wins uh, finishes? Sorry, how many hours sleep is Banyard now losing over that stupid chucking <laughs> up the road in Japan? Because he'd be he'd, he'd be he'd sort be of like 10, 10, 12 points out in front there. Probably. But anyway, you know, as you always say with your favorite saying, you know, you can't second guess the past and stuff. So, no. but yeah, to two points in it. Yeah, it's it's tense, <laughs> really tense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a good thing we got a week off in between here to sort of like calm down, refresh, reset. Yeah. Jack gets Miller. Jack Miller gets married. Congratulations to the Millers, I should say. Yes, indeed, and it, you know that'll be his uh, wedding present to himself if he can get on the top step at Philip Island. Because I'm it? sure there's some serious bonus money for winning that race. For oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much like hockey guys have money on the board when it's their old team. <laughs> there's money on the board there for that one. But yeah, it's nice to have a weekend off MotoGP. But obviously, we've got. World Superbike at Portimao and the Jake Gagne thing to look forward to. So I'm definitely going to be tuning into that. Yeah, I'm going to we'll try to figure a, out how to tune chat in about that. that. Yeah, Jim, I've just thought one more before we go. One more okay. news item. I, right. I spotted it. Yeah, um, I make Greg White um, mention this on Twitter earlier on today. I'm pretty sure I read this correctly because I. Was, okay. it, it is Greg White, isn't it? On uh, Greg's Garage Pod. Yep, that's true. Yep. I'm sure I read, and you can go off and find this out for yourself and confirm if it's right next okay. time we talk, but he put out a tweet that Moto America have had a rule change and the Superbike teams are going to be allowed a spare bike from next season onwards. Okay. Because so, you've often okay, ranted about the fact. 2023 Rules League. For This is this is Greg White's Twitter. I, I have yeah. it in front of me. Okay. Uh, so all classes get Superbike backup bike rule. Now only... SBK allows for a completely built backup bike to be ready. Safety, the main issue. For 2023, all classes are allowed to have a second bike ready to race. If the original bike is not rideable, say destroyed in a crash, your second bike will be inspected and allowed to practice slash race. In 2022, teams were not allowed to have a bike built on a rolling chassis. To prep a complete bike on a small team in a short time frame, mistakes can happen. Safer for all, my opinion. Which is you what go. you've said, which I, is what you've I been said. saying for ages, isn't it? So I've, I saw that quickly and I thought, oh, Jim, would you please? Because oh, I, mean, I am now that I know that. I just I haven't social I meant, media meant to mention it earlier on, and I forgot, and then it just suddenly came to me a little a few minutes ago. So um, yeah, that's good news, I think, because it is a safety issue. You know, if you've got teams racing to put partially assembled bikes together under time pressure, you know, that's when finger trouble comes in, and it's a safety it's a safety issue. I mean, you've called that one out numerous times, so yeah. Good, good to see that that Moto America actually taking a lead on that one. Yep, you got to agree with them on that one. Good for them. All right, so everybody, I want you all to enjoy your week off because Rich and I will. That's for <laughs> we <sure>. will. Yeah, <laughs> and until we see each other, talk to each other again. I, I say see because I can see Rich. Yeah, <laughs> you guys don't. <laughs> so that's we why might have, we might have to treat the uh, the listeners to a kind of a, a YouTube. Uh, I thought about at some that point. too. Yeah, I yeah. thought about that too. So, uh, so yeah, just ghastly, talking will heads. It? Yeah, just us talking <laughs> heads. Yeah, who knows? Anyway, until we talk again, I want everyone to ride safe. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.